All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back for another episode. Thank you so much for listening to the last episode. We talked about how freedom would have stopped the pandemic, and uh, it was a different kind of format, and it was just kind of a thought experiment in how a society without a government or with a, a minimal government, how they would handle some sort of pandemic like this. And we made the case that it is very well possible that a pandemic could have been handled and could have been stopped uh, even better by a society that had nothing but the three principles that this show was based upon, which is peace, property rights, and free markets. So if you didn't get a chance to check that out, just go back one episode and feel free to give that a listen. Let me know what you think. Uh, I didn't receive as much hate about that episode as I expected to. I really thought that a bunch of people were going to be writing in and telling me how how just how dumb it was and how terrible of an idea that this is and how it would never ever work. And instead, I heard a lot more of, wow, you really opened my eyes on this. And I had several people who said, I would have told you that you were crazy before listening to this episode. And now that I've heard it, um, I'm kind of shocked that I'm buying into it a little bit. So I guess that was exciting for me. I, I don't know. I guess I was looking forward to a little bit of the hate mail that I've gotten from a couple of other episodes. But instead, surprisingly positive. So uh, I guess we'll have to settle for that for now. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back and listen to it. Send me some hate mail if you want. I'd love to hear it. But right now, we are moving on to our very first ever Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, over the past few weeks, I've gotten several requests for uh, questions that people have said that they would like me to answer on the show, uh, for ideas for entire shows that we could do, and just a couple general things where people say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, or what do you think about this person? Or what is going on here? And I just wanted to take an opportunity to just dedicate this episode to questions that I have had written in over the past uh, past few weeks. And I'm really excited and really thrilled that you are enjoying this show enough that you want to write in and have ideas for things to talk about. And I just think that that goes to show that this is not just my podcast, but this is our podcast and that this belongs to you as well. And I'm really excited that you are excited as well uh, when it comes to topics for this show and things we're talking about and just the, the growth that's happening here. And I just can't get over it. And uh, I just want to thank you all so much. You could be listening to any podcast. You could be listening to anything out there. And instead, you're spending some time with me. And I just can't thank you enough for that. And I really appreciate it. But before we answer any questions, we need to talk about our sponsor for the next couple of episodes. And that is Free Kingdom Clothing Company. And this is a really cool clothing company. They make some really great designs. And the thing that I love and the thing that I know you are going to love as well is that their tagline is be free and their logo is a little b and this b is a it's a really simple logo but it looks really sharp and it's one of those things that uh, when you see it on their clothes you you could see that these shirts and these clothes would pair well with just about anything and that you could put them next to anything and they're going to look great and they have a, several really cool designs but my favorite is just the one with this little b on it and their taglines are be free and they've got a little extra e in parentheses next to b for you know to make it a b and a free kingdom clothing company for the people 
And they're also a Christian company. So if you are looking to spend some money with a company that shares your values, that's something that you can do here. But even if not, even if you're not even interested in religion at all whatsoever, I still love the message that they have about freedom and being for the people and this really simplistic, this really awesome little B logo. And I just can't get over how much I like it. And I'm really excited. I've got my shirt on the way. And uh, I'm just really excited to be partnering with them for a few weeks. And you can check them out at their website, which is freekingdomclothingco.com or on Instagram at freekingdomcc. And they have a lot of their clothing up there. You can check out some pictures and look at those things. They're taking pre-orders right now. They're getting ready to do a big launch. But if you're looking for some new clothes, something new, just to give somebody something to talk about. Um, like I said, I just, I, I really do. I just absolutely love the be free tagline with that B there, but just go check them out. It's really awesome. So with that being said, let's answer your questions. Uh, first one was a Facebook message. Somebody asked, what is with the Joe Biden campaign? It doesn't seem like he's even trying through this whole coronavirus thing. He has hardly said anything to anybody. And what's going on with the Tara Reid accusations? Why won't he let them go through his files to prove that he's innocent if he's really innocent and he has nothing to hide, why wouldn't he do that? So first of all, about the Joe Biden campaign, there's a couple of ways that you can look at this. Uh, the first one would be that Joe Biden is a crazy, senile old man, and his brain just isn't firing on all cylinders, and you can't trust him to know or to say the right thing from one minute to the next. And he's constantly talking in circles, and he doesn't have anything good to say, and uh, he's just not motivating people. So their best bet is to keep him put away and to keep his mouth shut and that they can just hopefully run him on the fact that, hey, it's got to be better than Donald Trump, right? We've got to stop the bad orange man. So vote for Grandpa Simpson. And that's going to be it. So uh, I think that's that's part of it. You know, his campaign manager is going to be pulling his hair out if he's not already. But one of the other theories, and I've heard Michael Malice has talked about it a lot. I've heard Dave Smith talk about it a lot as well. And I'm not sure who came up with it first or if it's just one of those things that's so obvious to a lot of people that, you know, plenty of people have come up with it at the same time. But there is some chatter that there is no way that Joe Biden is going to make it to November, uh, whether it be because of his age, because of his health, um, because of his mental acuity, um, that he's just not in it for the long run and that he's not going to be able to hold on even through the presidential campaign and that they're going to find a way to replace him and that they're going to find an excuse to do that and to to swap him out for a much more coherent candidate and the two names that I've heard thrown around a lot have been uh, Governor Gavin Newsom from California and Governor Andrew Cuomo from New York. And people have kind of been watching them and watching how they handle this pandemic in their states to see kind of what they look like when they're making decisions and what they look like when they're giving press conferences and that kind of thing to the people and, and just watching them for how they could handle that kind of moment in the spotlight. Because you've got to remember that when you look back to other elections in the past and other presidential primaries, even in 2016, uh, you didn't have a lot of the last people dropping out, leaving Hillary alone in the race until the middle of the summer. You know, it was June, July, those kind of months. And here we are in May, and it already seems like it's been decided for a couple of months that Joe Biden is the guy. But the problem with Joe Biden is he's really old. And again, you just, you never know what he's going to say from one minute to the next. And, and people really aren't sure whether they should try him out there or not. So 
Um, those are a couple things to talk about, and one thing that would tie in really well to this would be that these Tara Reid accusations have come up, and she accused him of sexually assaulting her back in 1993. And one thing that could come from this, if that theory is correct, that they are willing to swap him out for somebody else, is that the Democrat Party could use this as an opportunity to pull Joe Biden because of those allegations. Because you've seen a lot of times in the Me Too movement that when allegations come up about some sort of public figure, they expect this public figure to resign. They expect everyone to to force them to resign or to remove them from office or whatever it is. And um, I really think that the goal of the whole thing from the beginning was the to get Donald Trump removed from office. And I think they were hoping that if they could remove enough people from the public light because of their past sins, um, that people would look at Donald Trump and they would say, well, you know, he's got a lot of these nasty accusations in his background as well, so we're going to have to pull him from the White House. We're going to have to pull him out of the Oval Office. And just as we talked about in the mob mentality episode, uh, that's not going to fly. That's not going to happen with Donald Trump and his following. And really, along partisan lines anyway, people, they, they back people on their team. And, you know, they'll believe any accusation that goes against the bad guys, but when it's somebody on our side, well, we don't really believe that. We don't really think that that's true. But... In the instance of Tara Reid making these accusations against Joe Biden and these things being brought back up to light during his run for president, uh, this would give the left an opportunity to pull Joe Biden's nomination and to say, hey, we don't only talk the talk, we are going to walk the walk. And because Tara Reid has accused Joe Biden of this, that is the reason why we're going to pull him, because we are good and moral people, and those of us on the left uh, are willing to do the right thing, even when it's not politically popular. And they could make a big show about this, and they could pull Joe Biden and you know swap him out with uh, Cuomo or Newsom or whoever else it might be, and that would give them, you know, I guess some some political brownie points and a, a chance to try to move, win over some of those people from the middle to show that they're doing the right thing, uh, even though it was difficult or whatever. But that's one theory that's floating around out there. My theory, now I like that theory pretty well, and I definitely think it's very well possible, but my theory is if you go back to the 2004 election when it was uh, John Kerry against the incumbent George Bush, and... Nancy Pelosi kind of admitted later on that they, I, I guess you shouldn't say they threw the election, but, but they allowed themselves to be beat there because they knew if they lost in 2004, they could win bigger in 2008. So uh, what they were kind of gambling on was that, you know, George Bush is, it's 2004, George Bush has gotten himself into these wars in Afghanistan, and now we're, you know, looking at going into war in Iraq, and we're talking about whether or not we have to go to war in Iran, and there are several other of these countries that are just, all kinds of stuff is going on in the Middle East, and what Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic establishment kind of could see was that this probably wasn't going to turn out well for him, that we're fighting wars in places that most Americans have never heard of. There's no clear plan for victory. We don't even know what victory would look like. So it would be safe to say that if we let our country and we let this presidential administration get into this for another four or five years, the American voters will really be fed up with this 
and sick of it and ready to make some changes going into the 2008 election. And so maybe they wouldn't only win the presidency in 2008, but maybe they could have a big victory in Congress as well and do well in other elections because uh, we've seen how bad the Republicans have screwed everything up with these wars and, and we want to you know, make big changes and have a, a, you know, a blue wave come through. And uh, I, honestly, I didn't go back and look to see how they did in the, the Senate elections and all that stuff back then. But, you know, the truth is that uh, Barack Obama did win pretty big in 2008 and that that strategy kind of worked out for them because you got to remember, these people are really good at playing the long game. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of time to wait. The politics, especially, you know, in uh, American government, it's, it's a good old boys club. And uh, if you're old and rich and you've got power, even if you do lose an election, you, you can wait around for four years or eight years and, and let somebody else have their turn. And then you can hop back in there. And we see this over and over and over again. And that's why even looking at this, you know, presidential election, you've got uh, Donald Trump, who's an old guy, even though he's not really in their club. But, um, you know, Joe Biden is an old guy. Bernie Sanders, is a really old guy. Nancy Pelosi, she's 100 years old. I mean, these people are all, they've been around forever. And um, that's just kind of the game that they play. And so my theory for this, and I haven't heard anybody else talk about it, but I, I think that it's quite possible that Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party are content to lose this election in 2020. Uh, they had kind of a scare with Bernie Sanders really picking up a lot of steam there for a little bit, and they had to make some moves to make sure that they beat him and put him down on Super Tuesday. But I think that for Donald Trump, this outsider who's not in those political clubs and who doesn't run in those same circles as they do and is not one of them, for him to win presidency in 2016, that was a big deal. And that's a problem as far as they're concerned. But when you run the risk of Bernie Sanders, who is another kind of political outsider because he doesn't play by their rules, he's not friends with all the right people or anything like that, um, to, to have one outsider, Donald Trump, replaced by another outsider, potentially, uh, Bernie Sanders, would be an even bigger disaster because then, uh, you know, something like this happens one time, it's a fluke. But if it happens twice in a row, uh, then you've got serious problems with the power and the way that you're running this country. And uh, I think that that's something that they really feared and that they are willing to let the 2020 election go as well and that maybe they just won't win and Donald Trump will get reelected again and they can spend the next four years trying to keep their base angry and trying to keep uh, use the media to stir up as much as they can and, and as much hatred and whatever they can do to get political brownie points out of the Donald Trump presidency and that they can talk just about how bad and how crazy this guy is and then hopefully uh, after another four years of all of that uh, in 2024 we'll be ready to go back to the Democrats and um, you know let's be honest there is only one Donald Trump there is not another Donald Trump who's going to take over the Republican Party in 2024 and uh, you know lead them into another convincing presidential victory I just don't see that happening I don't see that person although his new press secretary is great she's probably way too young to be running for president but she is really uh, has really impressed me by the way that she's dealt with media a lot lately but I think it is very possible that the Democratic Party is going to run Joe Biden in this election knowing that he probably won't win um, just because it is safer to let Donald Trump win another round than it would would have been to run fair elections and to possibly let Bernie get the nomination for their party and to run the risk of Bernie winning the presidency um, because you just uh, like I said in the very first episode of this podcast, uh, I quoted George Carlin. I said, it's a big club and you ain't in it. And uh, I think that they got to make sure that Donald Trump is the only one not from the club 
who stumbled into this presidency because otherwise if it starts happening on a regular basis, they've got a mutiny on their hands as far as they're concerned, and they don't want that. So it would be far better to wait it out for another four years than to lose all control of the power that they kind of hold over that. So that's my theory on the Joe Biden campaign. There's also the Michael Malice, uh, Dave Smith thing where they say, you know, they're going to swap him out for somebody else. And that's definitely possible too, but those two things are definitely floating around. But I think no matter what, we can agree they're keeping him quiet because they don't want to have to do damage control every time he talks. So it's easier just to keep him out of the way. Uh, anybody who hates Donald Trump, anybody who's left of center, they know who they're voting for in November anyway. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or somebody else. They're voting for that guy anyway. So you don't need to waste a whole lot of time campaigning to those people. So might as well wait it out and not lose a lot of the undecided voters uh, while this pandemic is going on anyway. Uh, and then the other part, uh, the, what's with the Tara Reid allegations? Why won't he let Tara Reid into, or why won't he let them search the rest of the records for Tara Reid's name? This whole idea that if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide. First of all, that's, it's just silly. It's just ridiculous. Look, just because you don't have anything to hide doesn't mean that I can walk into your house and start going through your medicine cabinets and start searching through your drawers and, and whatever. Um, we would not agree to having anybody do that to us. And so um, our, our privacy is important as it is. But especially when it comes to public political scandals, you don't want any of your information to get out there and to be floating around. And, uh, you know, they're saying this with Joe Biden now. Of course, conservatives are saying this, you know, if you got nothing to you got nothing to hide, you know, let, just let us look through and let us make sure that nothing's there. And Joe Biden is fighting that. You saw the same thing in the impeachment with Donald Trump. And they're, you know, trying to get him to give sworn statements to the FBI. And they're trying to go through, you know, a lot of his records and that kind of stuff. We've been talking about his tax returns forever and, you know, all this stuff. And once more saying the same thing, you know, if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide. But the truth is, in a public political scandal, everything will be, not, not can be used, but everything will be used as an indictment against you. Um, whatever information they can dig up, they're going to do what they can to twist that or to take it out of context or do whatever they can to make you look bad because politics is a team sport and each team is trying to destroy the other team constantly. So whatever is in those records, whatever is in Donald Trump's tax returns, whatever uh, is in any of these people's you know text messages or emails, people are going to be looking through those, looking for anything that they can misuse and twist to make it look like these are bad people. They're not interested in the truth. Nobody in this game of politics is really interested in doing the right thing or in finding justice or in finding truth. Um, they only want those kind of things if they're good for their own side and they're bad for the opposite side. So, you know, Joe Biden doesn't want anybody going through his records from the University of Delaware or whatever it is because you know, he's been in politics for a long time. He's voted on a lot of things that you may be able to go back and dig up that might be controversial. Um, you might be able to link him to other people who have since gotten into some kind of legal trouble. You know, there's always somebody from the government or somebody who's related to those kind of things who get brought up on, you know, corruption charges or insider trading or any of those things. And it's just impossible to know how many things could be tied to him, whether that would be fairly or unfairly. So, you know, whether or not this Tara Reid accusation is true, I have no idea. I'm really not 
interested in it either way because a lot of these guys are scumbags and it wouldn't surprise me one bit to find out uh, if it were true. But at the same time, like I said, politics is a dirty, nasty game and it also wouldn't surprise me to find out that somebody made a false accusation to try to bring somebody else down or to try to profit off of that. So uh, I don't know what the truth is there. I have no idea. I haven't dug into it a whole lot, but I can tell you that if you just open up his records to start going through things, um, Republicans are going to do whatever they can to find what whatever it is that they can find and to make it look like a big deal, even if it may not be. And it would be the same way uh, with Donald Trump and the impeachment and hearing uh, extra testimony and bringing forth extra evidence and all of that stuff. Look, it's not about the truth. It's about bringing this person down. And um, you, you don't want that to happen. So Joe Biden, his team, whoever it is making those decisions, that's a good move for them to make. It was a good move for Donald Trump to make uh, with the impeachment and all that stuff to keep his stuff locked down. And, you know, whatever it is with his tax returns that we keep bringing up and arguing about, somebody is going to be able to find something on that, you know, two pages of his 1040 or whatever it is uh, that they're going to say, all oh, this looks fishy. All oh, this look, this points to something bad. And uh, the truth is, you can't really tell much from those tax returns anyway, but someone would be willing to make something big out of it if they had the chance. And so Donald Trump doesn't want to share those. And the same goes for Joe Biden and Tara Reid. Uh, next question. Oil prices were really low for a little while. Now I see them creeping back up. Um, do you have any idea what was going on with that and why oil prices were so low? Um, yes, I will give you kind of a brief overview of this. Don't don't nail me down on the details or anything like that. I may fudge the details some, but the general overview of what happened was this. As you might know, when they drill for oil and they have these oil deposits in the ground and they're pulling the oil from the ground, pumping it out of the ground, they have a little bit of control over how much oil they pull out at one time. So it's almost like you're uh, almost like a faucet, you know, that your kitchen sink and you can turn the water on so that there's a little bit of a trickle or you can turn it on full blast so that it's pouring out quickly. And they can do kind of the same thing with the oil. And the reason they do this is because because when there's less oil, just like anything else, there's the rules of supply and demand. And when there is less oil, the price of oil is going to go up a little bit. And when there's more oil available to sell, uh, the price of oil is going to go down a little bit. So what the oil companies try to do when they're pumping this oil out is they try to make it so that they can keep the oil coming out slow enough that they can charge higher prices for it so that there's not as much of it and they can, they can raise the price a little bit. Um, but not so slow that they can't sell enough of it to make a profit. And then when things get turned up and the, you know competitors are, are using more oil or whatever it is, um, then they can really pump a lot of that oil out. But the thing is, when you're pumping a lot of that oil out, obviously you're going to deplete the reserves a little bit faster. And when there's a lot more oil on the market, you're, the prices are going to be cheaper. So they're constantly you know, kind of running this balancing act um, between what everybody else in the market is doing. And then, of course, uh, supply and demand is going to change a little bit, maybe through the seasons or whatever it is. And there's this constant kind of you know, fluctuation. And, and we see that gas prices and that kind of thing change you know, a little bit all the time. But we saw them especially low there for a couple months. And what happened was Russia has a lot of oil that they export as well. And what they did was they decided that they were going to take a gamble and they were going to turn their oil production up to full force, that they were going to get as much oil out of the deposits as they could. And their goal was to flood the market so that there would be so much cheap oil on the market 
that they could sell these for an incredibly low price and that it would be selling for cheaper than, you know, maybe America or Saudi Arabia could even sell their oil to make a profit off of it. So basically what Russia was trying to do was they were trying to stop America and Saudi Arabia from making any money off of their oil. And their goal was, it was kind of like this game of chicken where they wanted to keep the oil turned up for so long that they could actually hopefully bankrupt some of these other oil companies. And so they could keep prices so low that nobody else is able to make any money off of it. And at the same time, Russia is going to be losing money as well. But they are hoping that they can hold out and that they can hold this pattern and that they can you know, slowly bleed money or whatever by flooding the market with oil, um, that they could do it for longer than the other companies. And that some of these other companies would have to declare bankruptcy, that some of these other companies you know, might, might lose their, their businesses over this. And then at that point, if the Russians have any money left, they could probably buy up some of these oil fields, buy up some of this equipment or the rights to this land with the oil under it uh, or whatever. And then once they have a bigger share on the market, they could raise their prices back up and they would have pushed some of their competitors out of business and they would have acquired new equipment and new wealth because of that. And then that would be profitable for them in the long run. But they were going to have to play this kind of game of chicken where they bled a lot of money for, um, I think the number I heard was like six months is what it would take to really put the hurt on these other companies. But um, I could be wrong with that. But that was, I think what I heard, but that was their goal was to do that. And um, it was really interesting and really ballsy move to be honest. But uh, it seems like it didn't work um, because, you know, roughly the same time that they're flooding the market with oil, we start getting all of these coronavirus lockdowns and people aren't allowed to go to work and you're not allowed to travel and you're not allowed to go to any of these vacation destinations or anything like that. So um, people started using a lot less oil as well. So that's where you're seeing these really low gas prices because not only is the market flooded with oil, but also, uh, which is you know a ton of supply, but also there's no demand for the oil because people aren't filling their cars up with gas because they're not allowed to drive their cars. So uh, that was why you saw oil prices go, gas prices go down so low. But after a little while, it uh, looks like, you know, Russia got a little bit you know nervous or they balked first, even though they are the ones that kind of initiated that little game there. And uh, they started rolling their oil production back a little bit because obviously they didn't want to bleed themselves dry and bleed themselves out of business as well. But that was kind of what they were doing, what they were trying to do. And that's why you saw that reflected in such low oil prices. Um, another question from Twitter. Uh, I saw a headline from a Bob Murphy article that said coronavirus was possibly worse than the depression. Can you expand on that? Uh, I haven't had a chance to read the whole article yet, but I did listen to one of Bob Murphy's episodes where he was talking about this. And I think what, what he's referencing in this is that the unemployment rate for uh, the, the last couple of months of this lockdown that we've been experiencing He's saying that it was, I um, can't remember the numbers exactly, but the, the unemployment was like 22 or 23%, something like that. And that at its highest point during the Great Depression back in the 30s, um, that it was at 24 or 25%. So we're just a couple of percent short of the worst unemployment rate ever. Uh, but what he was explaining was that during the Great Depression, when they started you know, making these government make-work programs where you would go out and you would plant trees, or there's a rumor, I don't know if it was ever confirmed, but there's a rumor that there's a street uh, somewhere, I think it's in the Midwest, I think it's like Kansas or Missouri or Iowa, one of those places, and there's a brick road, and it was laid during the Great Depression. And the rumor was that 
they laid all the bricks down for this road during the Great Depression as a make-work project, and that when they were finished, there was no more work to do, but there were also no jobs, no real jobs for these guys to go out and get. So the government paid them to go back through all of the bricks that they had laid and flip every single one of them over. And so wherever this street is, you can go look at it, and uh, the legend is that all of those bricks were originally face up instead of face down because the government was just paying these people to try to make work. But the idea was uh, when they're figuring out the unemployment rates for those times, even though people were working on these government make work programs by planting trees or making mural, painting murals or flipping bricks over in the middle of the street, whatever it is, that because they weren't actually employed uh, because they were just kind of getting this sympathy employment that the government was giving out, uh, they still counted those people toward the unemployment figures. So some of them were working, but because it wasn't actual, meaningful, real employment, um, it didn't count toward the unemployment figures. So if you take that into consideration, uh, if those numbers were a couple percent higher than what we're experiencing now, but you realize that a lot of those people really were working and they really were getting paid, even though it was by the government, um, then you could say that it's quite likely that the unemployment rates that we're experiencing now is actually higher than the worst part of the Great Depression. Um, and obviously, there are going to be some differences there because the idea is that hopefully once this lockdown is over, um, you know, all that business is going to bounce back much more quickly than what happened in the Great Depression. And uh, we'll probably do an episode maybe someday on the Great Depression and we'll talk about how FDR really stretched that out and really made it a last a lot longer than it should have. And that this is something that's generally agreed on by most economists. This isn't even an Austrian thing. This isn't even a free markets thing. Um, but this is something that most economists agree that FDR's actions really extended the Great Depression. And you can kind of go back and you can say, well, you know, we had to do something. Um, but the truth is, if you would let the market react and let the market recover, then the truth is the Great Depression would have been over a lot more quickly. So we're hoping that that same thing happens here with us, that the, our depression or recession or whatever this is that we're in uh, will recover once everyone's allowed to go back to work because you've got you know, hairdressers and waitresses and cooks all you know, completely out of work because it's just illegal to go back. It's not even that the demand is gone. It's the fact that we're just not legally allowed to do so until the governor decides that it's okay. Um, and Jeff Dice brought up another really good point on the Tom Woods show, and he said that one of the other things that's going to come out of this is that contracts don't mean as much anymore. And contracts are something that really govern uh, the way that we live our lives and the way that we interact with other people because when you work for someone else, uh, there's a contract between the two of you, and you agree that you are going to work certain hours and you're going to do certain work and you're going to do that work of a certain quality and you know you're going to be at work at the times that you're supposed to be at work and and on their end of the contract they agree that they're going to pay you x amount for that work and you know when you sign up for a project or you pay somebody to build you a house or remodel your house or you know do whatever work for you or fix your car you're agreeing that they're going to do this job and that you're going to pay them X amount for it. And, uh, you know, the same thing goes with rent. You're going to pay your landlord X amount of dollars so that you can stay in your house every month. And if anybody breaks that contract, then you're able to take the contract to court and you're able to say, look, this is what we agreed to do. This person is breaking the contract because they're not doing what we agreed to do. And they're going to have to pay damages 
to fulfill their end of the bargain so that this contract can be you know fulfilled and closed or you know that they'll pay the penalty for breaking that contract but jeff dice points out that what the problem is here is that it's going to cause people to lose a lot of faith in their contracts because now during this virus you know evictions have been canceled you know most places you're not allowed to evict anybody your employer you know the employers had to lay a lot of people off and let a lot of people go for no reason other than the fact that they weren't allowed to be open anymore. It had absolutely nothing to do with these people's performance. It had absolutely nothing to do with their character or anything they were doing at work. It was just simply illegal to have them come to work so that they could be paid. And if somebody doesn't pay their rent or something like that and you need to have them evicted or you have some other um, dispute come up over a contract or over anything else and you want to take them to court, well, guess what? Coronavirus has shut the courts down, and the courts are now backlogged for, a lot of people are saying, you know, six months now. So you can't even get a speedy trial. So you can try to evict someone, but you cannot have that eviction approved through court and get this person removed from your property, even though maybe they haven't paid a dime in rent in months. And of course, there's something to be said in this discussion about where compassion comes in and, and charity and all of those kind of things and, and allowing people to work together to make the best of things. And I think that there have also been a lot of really good stories of tenants and landowners and those kind of people working together to say, hey, you know, don't pay rent this month. I'm going to forgive rent or, um, you know, sometimes just extending the terms of the contract or the terms of the loan so that, you know, you don't have to pay for a couple of months and we'll just tack these months onto the the end of the contract instead or whatever it is. But nonetheless, there's been a precedent set here that if you break a contract now because there was a virus, because something scary happened and the government had to shut down some businesses, uh, then you have no recourse for the other person breaking the contract. And that's a big problem. And that's something that could scare a lot of people from doing business with others or from investing in others' businesses or any of those things. Because if there's a concern that you know they're not going to be able to get their money's worth out of this, or there's a concern that they're not going to be able to uh, collect rent from this person if some sort of sickness or pandemic or whatever crazy thing happens, um, then they may, may be just less willing to rent those things out or less willing to do that business. And maybe their house sits empty and this person doesn't get to rent that house because of what has happened here and how you know a lot of these state government actions have caused us to lose faith in the contract system. Uh, next question. Um, do you have any thoughts on Mike Flynn? Shouldn't he go to jail since he pled guilty to lying to the FBI? Um, no. Look, lying to the FBI isn't a real crime. Uh, lying to the FBI is what they try to get you on when they've got nothing else to threaten you with. Uh, if they start talking about charging you for lying to the FBI... Uh, that is simply leverage on their part. Uh, same thing happened. Martha Stewart was, they tried to nail her down on uh, insider trading. And instead, what happened was they couldn't get her on any of that. They didn't have the evidence to convict her. So what happened was she pled guilty to lying to the FBI and spent her time in prison because of that. And what they do is they will question you about, you know, whatever whatever other issue that they're questioning you about, and they will ask you for all kinds of minute details about these things. And they'll ask you over and over and over again. They'll record your answers, and they'll go back and they'll ask him the same questions again. And they may ask him in a little bit of a different way. And they'll ask him, 
you know, to answer questions that he's already answered. And if his answer changes just a little bit on any of those details about who was there or, you know, they can tell him that he said something else about a certain meeting and they can lie to him about something that he said. And if he goes back and tries to correct that because he doesn't remember exactly what was said, then they've got him for lying to the FBI. And then what the, the whole system of plea bargains is absolutely ridiculous. So what they do is they threaten you with decades and decades of prison and we're going to put you away for 40, 50 years and, you know, you're not going to you're going to spend the rest of your life behind bars before you get out. Or you can take a plea deal with a short six-month sentence and, and you're done. And so even at that point, even somebody who is innocent is going, well, I'm looking at 40 years if somehow they throw me away or I can take the six months. Um, a lot of times you're going you're gonna to take that plea bargain. And, and just because somebody takes a plea bargain doesn't mean that they were guilty of that thing. It simply means that they were much more afraid of what could possibly go wrong if they fought it in court and they were found guilty. Uh, there's a, the story about John Kiriakou and how they put him in prison was an absolutely crazy story. But basically what happened was he was innocent and he wanted to fight it in court. And his lawyer told him that the, the court where they try a lot of these government uh, conspiracy or government uh, malfeasance type cases is in Virginia. And they're all Washington judges who you know are in good with everybody from Washington. And the conviction rate in that court was well over 99%. I mean, it was it was something like, I'm not even sure if anybody was ever found not guilty of those types of charges. They were always, always found guilty. And so you're going into a court that is almost certainly going to convict you, whether you did it or not. And the penalty for being convicted is decades and decades in prison, or you just, you admit that you misspoke on something or that you got confused at one of the questions and gave a wrong answer and you do your six months and you get to go. So I'm not worried at all about Mike Flynn not serving in prison. That doesn't bother me at all. If they're, so if they're waving around that lying to the FBI charge, that tells me that they didn't have anything else on him. And what it really appears to be is that they have gone through everybody that they possibly can, who was even remotely close to Trump. And they've tried to shake them down for any information that they could get to, um, to convict Trump, to convict Donald Trump of some kind of crime. And it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. It looks like Donald Trump, at least from a legal standpoint, uh, has his hands clean. And I don't think they're going to nail him down on any of that. But that doesn't mean that they're going to stop trying. Um, somebody on Facebook messaged me and said, what about Justin Amash? Heard a lot about him declaring for president. Is he a good guy? Uh, well, Justin Amash has announced this weekend that he is no longer going to be running for president. That was kind of a whole weird Thing anyway. Um, but yeah, Justin Amash is a pretty good guy. Uh, when I think of the people who have consistently defended liberty in Congress, I think of uh, Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and Justin Amash. And all of them were very good constitutional, liberty-minded congressmen. And I try to cheer them on when I could. Um, but Justin Amash got really kind of weird about this uh, this impeachment thing. And he was, you know, one of the only Republicans who was in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. And when he would give his reasons for why he thought Donald Trump would be impeached, you know, he talked about how the president would kind of flex his muscles with his power a little bit and would, you know, kind of pressure other countries to do things and that sort of thing. But um, the truth is, that's something that every president does, and it doesn't mean that it's right, doesn't mean that it's it's the good thing to do, but it just seems like if you're going to try to impeach a president and try to remove him from office over something, it would seem like that should be something pretty big. 
I had another friend who asked me about it and asked me, you know, if the charges made any sense. And I said, it would be like if I went to your boss and I told your boss that I had evidence that you had committed a crime and that you, you know, were going to need to be fired. And then when I went to your boss with this, this bombshell information, I would prove to them that I saw you speeding, that you were going five miles an hour over the speed limit uh, on the highway on your way to work. And of course, everyone would agree that breaking the speed limit is illegal, but they would also agree that you know most people do that, and that if you're just breaking the speed limit a little bit, you're not really hurting anybody. So sure, technically it's wrong, but it's not something that you're going to bust in and, and take somebody's job over. And I think that... Um, you know, not to belittle a lot of the things that our federal government does, but when you are looking at the grand scheme of all the things that these presidents do and all of the things that we do on a regular basis, and then you want to get mad over Donald Trump doing the same thing that every other president has done in a lot of those negotiation type situations, it just didn't make sense to me. So uh, I wasn't a fan of him on impeachment, and I wasn't a fan of him jumping into the libertarian presidential race so late after the libertarians had already had a lot of debates and that kind of stuff underway. Um, but Justin Amash is a good guy. Uh, a couple of things you know, he's done has sort of annoyed me and didn't quite make sense to me, but I don't want to throw the guy out of the liberty movement and... Um, I'm not part of the Libertarian Party, but you know I wouldn't want to throw him out just because of those couple of minor disagreements between uh, his thoughts on impeachment and his strategy for running for president. But now it looks like he's pulled out of that, so it doesn't matter anyway. And uh, finally, another question through email. Could you share any of your thoughts on the Ahmad Arbery situation and uh, who was right and who was wrong in that situation? Uh, and do you think it was motivated by racism? Okay, uh, this Ahmad Arbery thing is a little bit complicated. Um, there are two aspects of this that I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about the the moral aspect and what I believe is right and wrong and how that went down here. And then after we talk about the moral aspect of it, um, I want to spend a couple minutes talking about my understanding of the legal aspect of it and what I think is going to come out of this in, uh, in the court case. So from what I've been able to tell, uh, with this Ahmad Arbery thing, you know, the first thing we heard was that he was out jogging and that these men suspected him of being a burglar that they had seen in town. And of course, uh, you know, the racial elements were there as well. And so they chased this guy down and he was just jogging and then they corner him and they shoot him and he was unarmed and he's died. So, and we find out a little bit later that there was video and then a third person followed them in, and on the video, you can see him jogging up the road, and then you see them kind of corner him, and they, they kind of pull the truck sort of in front of him to try to block him in, and uh, one of the guys has a shotgun in his hand, and you can't tell really well. It doesn't look like he's pointing the shotgun, but it's kind of, kind of down toward the ground, sort of at the ready position that he could pull it up and aim it at him at any time. And when they get Ahmad Arbery... Um, kind of cornered and finally you know he's so close that he's almost within reach of the guy then he Ahmad Arbery kind of lunges across the road at the other guy I think his name was McMichaels I think they were father and son their name were McMichaels if I remember right um, kind of launched at the son who's holding the shotgun and, and kind of throws a punch at him I think and tries to get the gun away from him and at that point uh, the gun is fired and Ahmad Arbery is shot and, and he died from those wounds. So uh, a little bit after that, we find out that beforehand he may not have actually been jogging, but that he was walking around in this house that was under construction, and uh, they have video footage, security video footage of what appears to be Ahmad Arbery walking around the house, and um, he's just looking around, 
doesn't look like he's stolen anything. The property owner said that he wasn't missing anything. It didn't appear that anything had been stolen. Um, but that a few weeks prior to this incident, that he had had some fishing equipment stolen from, I guess, from that property. So the neighbors knew about that, and they were kind of on the lookout for this. So one of the other neighbors goes out to approach Ahmad Arbery, this guy who's in a, in a vacant house that's under construction. And when they approach him, you know, whatever happens, I don't know if words were exchanged or what, but he runs away. And at this point, he sprints out of the house, and then he kind of acts like he's jogging down the road. And the neighbors hop in, and uh, these McMichael's father and son, that's when they chase him down, and you, you see what happened there. So from a moral standpoint, look, you have a right to protect your property. And if, if someone is on your property and you consider them to be a danger, then you have the right, as far as I'm concerned, to defend yourself and to defend your property. However, the circumstances under that may change a little bit. You know, if, if someone is breaking into your home, then by all means, you are going to assume that they're coming in to, to possibly hurt you. But if you have acres and acres and acres of land and you see someone, you know, standing along your fence line in a large grass field or something like that, then you may not think so much because they're, they're not necessarily kind of in your space. Um, you may not have as much reason to think that they're, you know, on your property in order to harm you. And you may be much better off just asking them to leave or whatever. You know, you don't have to threaten them with physical harm. You know, in the same boat, if someone is breaking into your neighbor's house or someone is on your neighbor's property threatening them and threatening to harm them, then you may be kind of justified in going over and physically harming that person to protect them or to stop the threat, whatever it is. However, in this situation... Arbery is in this house that's under construction, and there, there aren't even walls in the house. So there's nobody on the property. There's nobody in the house. It's not an occupied home or anything like that. Uh, he wasn't breaking and entering because the walls are wide open, so he's able just to walk right on through. And at worst, if you want to assume the absolute worst, then he may have been looking for something to steal. And we don't know that, and I don't want to assume that, but I'm saying even if that was what he was there for, there certainly wasn't any human life endangered by that. So, uh, you know, a neighbor approaches him and, you know, asks him what he's doing or whatever the exchange was, and he runs away from the property. Now, at that point, it doesn't appear that he's stolen anything. No one's life is in danger. No one's physical safety is in danger whatsoever. Uh, and, and he has left the property and he is running away. At that point... The threat is gone. The incident is over. If you want to call the police and report this, then by all means, do that. Uh, if you think that he's stolen something, which once more, it doesn't look like there was anything to tell any reason for us to believe that he had stolen something, but if you thought that he had something valuable and you wanted to stop him, then maybe you call the cops and you stay on the phone with him and, and you follow him. Um, and you say, hey, you know, I'm going down this road, I'm watching where he's at, but... At the point that they block his travel and kind of box him into a corner a little bit, and they've the guy is holding a shotgun that he could easily point at him uh, and shoot him at any minute, then they've become the aggressors at that point. The McMichael's father and son have become the aggressors by blocking him in and you know having a weapon there to intimidate him. And at that point, he has 
some sort of fight or flight response and you know you're not going to outrun a bullet so maybe his best option at that point is to fight back at them and um, you know try to get that gun out of his hand so that hopefully he's not shot you know also when you look into the the racism aspect of that look I don't know. Um, I really don't know whether racism played a part in this. And honestly, if you were to ask that father and son whether racism played a part in this, um, I don't think you would get a clear answer from them either. I don't think even if you could give them some sort of truth serum to find out what they were really thinking, um, a lot of this racism stuff is just subtle. And we may not even realize that it's having that kind of effect on us. And these guys could have just been vigilantes that were chasing down who they thought was a burglar and they just wanted to protect his property. They may have assumed that maybe because this guy was black, maybe they assumed that he didn't belong in that neighborhood. And that's why they didn't trust him. And that could have motivated it. Um, We really have no idea. And um, unfortunately, because the media likes these kind of stories that that pit different people against each other and and paint this picture of, you know, racism and that kind of thing. Honestly, it just makes everyone feel worse about it. And I'm not sure that it really helps anybody in this situation anyway, because um, if these two guys were racist, accusing them of being racist isn't going to make them any less racist, if that makes any sense. I mean, I don't think it's going to move the needle any for them. I don't think it's going to change anybody. And people who are taking these guys' sides who don't like the racist accusations that may turn them against people that are different from them a little bit more as well. So, you know, I I don't know what, what's going to come of this and I don't, and you're not going to be able to prove that racism had anything to do with this. And uh, that's unfortunate, but at the same time, um, regardless of what this guy's skin color is or what these other people's skin color was, um, I think that what they did was wrong, you know, and I think at the absolute worst, if you want to give them the, the complete benefit of the doubt, then maybe, this guy was a, a burglar or a thief, and he, he left the property. And at that point, he was no longer a threat to anybody, and uh, they didn't have any right to corner him and to, to shoot him like that. So definitely a, a sad situation. Now, legally, we may be telling a little bit of a different story here. And I want to make it completely clear that, that I just gave you my feelings from a moral standpoint. That's how I feel about this. But... If you also want to have the discussion uh, as to what does the law say and um, how do we think this is going to play out in court, then we need to talk about that and we need to be realistic about it. So these aren't necessarily my feelings about how things should work, but I think that this is how it's going to play out. Uh, So what I did was uh, I know someone who is a police officer and uh, asked him a little bit about this, a little bit about how citizens arrest works and that kind of thing to find out, you know, where these guys were at within their rights by chasing this guy down and whatever. And um, we have very different feelings on, you know, ideology, on right and wrong, on, you know, the police's role in our society and that kind of thing. Um, I disagree with him on a whole lot of things. However, his job is to arrest people. So, um, I would be willing to, to to defer to some of his experience and some of his knowledge for kind of the legal side of this. And basically, the way he explained it to me was he's not in the state of Georgia, but you know, assuming that the laws are, are somewhat similar, um, you can perform a citizen's arrest if you witness a felony being committed. And at that point, um, you know, you can physically hold them in place until the authorities arrive. Or in certain situations, you can actually take them directly to the magistrate to be seen and tried, um, you know, right away. And that is in the case of a 
felony, if they see a felony committed. Now, if they see a misdemeanor committed, that's not the case. So what you would have to assume in order for the McMichaels father and son to be performing a citizen's arrest during this supposed burglary, you'd have to assume that this man was in the vacant house trying to steal something big and expensive because just a small theft would be a misdemeanor and that would not be something that they could arrest him for. So what I was told was that when you have intent to to commit a crime, um, that they will charge you for whatever that crime is minus one level. So, you know, intent to commit murder might be reduced to, um, you know, the, the charge, uh, the, the penalty of a, a manslaughter or something like that, if that makes sense. So, so maybe they could assume that he had intent to commit a, a large theft that would be enough money to, to warrant a felony. Um, and then at that point, they would be, you know, performing a citizen's arrest by chasing him down and, and questioning him and holding him for the authorities to arrive. And um, that if they assume that, given the, the information that they had, which was that they saw this guy in the house and that he matched the description, supposedly matched the description of somebody else who uh, had been stealing stuff before, that they would be able to, within their rights, they would be able to try to perform a citizen's arrest, that they would be able to try to question this guy and hold this guy for the police to come and, and they could question him and you know try him for whatever. And that these men could do that. And then when this man fled, that that would give them you know, more of a reason to think that he had done something wrong and they could try to chase him. And at the point that they corner him in, obviously, like we talked about before, he lunged at the gun. And so him lunging at the gun could be taken to mean that he was going to pull the gun away from them and use it on them. And so they, in self-defense at that point, fired the gun and shot him and killed him in self-defense. Once more, that is not what I'm trying to say happened, but in the court of law, the way that the law is written, if they are given enough benefit of the doubt for it to be assumed that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest and that it is considered that the possible intent to commit a felony theft was there, then it is very possible that they can just see that as a case of self-defense and uh, you know, a case of a, a failed citizen's arrest and that maybe these men weren't right in the way that they did things, but that they had good intentions and that they were trying to do something that was in their rights to do. So if that's the case, if that's the truth, which is what this police officer that I spoke to kind of said, that the way that he sees it is um, that you know, they may have made a, a poor decision, um, but they didn't make an illegal decision. And uh, that it is very well possible that they could walk. And uh, if they do, then that's because of the way the law is written. It's not because of any kind of racism. It's not because of anything like that. It's just, um, unfortunately, the, the court is going to weigh this uh, in that matter. And once more, you know, I can't say enough. Uh, I think that they were in the wrong I think that that whole incident should have ended when he ran away and everyone on the property was considered safe. But we'll see how that plays out. We'll see what happens. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have something to talk about later when it comes to that. Uh, I have one other question about immigration. And honestly, I am going to hold that off for a different episode. I think that maybe we'll have time to talk about that uh, in an extended light and uh, maybe you know, be able to spend a good segment of an episode talking about immigration. And so I just want to let you know, I didn't forget about you, um, but I am going to hold that off for uh, maybe the next episode. We'll see what happens, but I am running out of time. 
So I just want to thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. As always, reach out to me. My email address is garrettagain at pm.me. I'm on Twitter at garrettagain or facebook.com slash garrettagain. You can reach me on any of those things. And as always, Garrett just has one R. Can't wait to talk to you again on the next episode. And until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.